Well, the passage this morning can be found in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, and then verses 54 through 62. It's printed in your bullets, and you could also follow along in your own Bibles. Let me ask if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord. As a reminder, there are two deacons who are on duty, Tony Pearson and uh, Jim Shimp, if you need help. There is overflow seating behind me here, and if you can't hear very well in here, you can hear better in the room behind me. So if that's a concern, feel free to move to there. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, and then verses 54 through 62. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then in verse 54, Then they seized him, and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him, and they said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we look together at your word that you would reveal in our hearts the need that we have for the saving work of our Lord and Savior, that you would show us more of your grace, that you would show us more of your power, that we would be moved to worship you, that our faith in you would grow that our doubts would be diminished, that you would be glorified in our weakness, that you would be made strong and obvious through the proclamation of your word. By the work of your spirit, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, I don't know if you realize it or not, but for the last Almost a year and a half we've been in the Gospel of Luke now. It's been just about a year and a half, uh, maybe a month away from the actual year and a half mark. And so we have been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and along the way, 
And we've seen from the Gospel of Luke, like we see in uh, the books of the Bible, all the books of the Bible, that this book is this deep treasure trove that continues to yield its fruit to us. And no matter how often we've read this Gospel, we still continue to see things with new eyes and to see new, new things in the Gospels. And all along the way, as we've worked through this Gospel, we've approached each passage with a slightly different angle. Sometimes we read the passage and we just look at exactly what it says and and we unfold the Word of God together. But other times we're given this opportunity to take some creative angles as we look at the words of Christ in this gospel. So this morning and the next two weeks as we look at Luke chapter 22, we're going to be looking at some of the disciples of Jesus. It's a great opportunity because in this chapter there's a number of disciples who play prominent roles in the conversation with Jesus. And after we look this week at Simon Peter, next week at James and John, and then finally at Judas Iscariot, we will continue in the narrative with the life of Christ, looking at his betrayal and then his crucifixion. But three weeks to spend uh, on some of these disciples and apostles, and so this morning we'll be looking at Simon Peter, at Simon Peter. And before we begin looking at Peter from the passage, I'd like to begin by constructing a character map of Simon Peter. And that is to say, I want to draw a picture of everything that we understand about Peter up until this point. I want to get a rather comprehensive picture of the man before we uh, go into looking at his interactions with Jesus in Luke chapter 22. So if you think about Peter through both the gospel of Luke but all the other gospels, What are some of the things that you recall about this man, Peter? I gave him a beard. I think he had a beard. I'll tell you what uh, comes to my mind as I think about Peter through the Gospels. I think that the first time we find Peter, very early in all of the Gospels, he is fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And so I'm going to write that Peter is a fisherman. You remember, that's the call of Peter and his brother Andrew. They're there fishing on the sea. Jesus comes up to them and he calls them to follow him. And Peter goes and he follows the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, shortly after Peter's call to follow the Lord Jesus, we see that Peter's mother-in-law is healed by Jesus. And so many people point to this and they say, well, this tells us something about Peter. He was a married man. And indeed, he has a mother-in-law. So either he is married or he's widowed. But at the very least, he has been married. Okay? We continue following the the life of Peter, looking at his interactions with Christ and the story throughout the Gospels. We find that a number of times Jesus points out the fact that his name, Peter, means rock. That is obvious when Jesus speaks to him about how Jesus will build the church later on. But we see it in other places as well, as Jesus is interacting with Peter and points out the the roughness of Peter or how Peter is firm, right? This comes up in conversation that Jesus has with Peter. We also see that he is the, I would call him the vocal leader. The vocal leader of the disciples. Whenever the disciples have a, a moment where someone will speak for the group, it's often Peter. Right? Peter speaks for the other 12. Peter will say what we're all thinking, or Peter will do what we're all thinking of doing. He's the vocal leader of the group. Think of some of the characteristics that come up in the Gospels concerning this man, Peter. What, what, what else do we know about him? 
I think one of the things I, I think about Peter is I, I would say that he's confident, okay? Confident. And we often see that confidence directed towards the Lord Jesus. Think about the confidence early on in Peter's life concerning Christ. He says in Luke chapter 6, when Jesus performs a miracle, he says, Lord, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. He says in John chapter 6, Jesus, you have words of eternal life. There's a, a boldness to the proclamation of the things that Peter sees. There's an intuitive understanding that Peter has concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike any of the other disciples. We also see in Peter's life, there's a great level of doubt. Think of some of the instances you remember Peter demonstrating his own doubt. Matthew 14, he sees Jesus on the water, and what does he do? He steps out, he walks on the water, and he's like, that's great! And then he immediately begins to sink because of the doubt in his heart, okay? The doubt in his heart. Uh, another instance, he's interacting with Jesus, and, and Christ says, uh, the Son of Man must be betrayed and handed over and crucified. And Peter says, may it never be, Lord, right? And Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. It's the doubt of Peter, okay? So Peter's a fisherman who's married. His name means rock, a vocal leader of the disciples. He's confident. He often demonstrates doubt in his interactions. What else do we recognize about Peter? He's pragmatic. Now listen, this is my understanding of Peter. He's pragmatic. You think about what he does at the transfiguration, right? There's Jesus on the mountain, Elijah and Moses, and everybody is standing in wonder and in awe. And Peter says, well, let's build a place for these guys to live, to, for them to dwell. Let's construct tents so that Elijah and Moses can have a place to be, right? That's extremely pragmatic. It seems to miss the point of what's happening at the transfiguration, but it's very practical. Also, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, we have given up everything to follow you. What will we have? It's a, it's a pragmatic declaration. I also think one other thing I notice about Peter is that he is frail. Peter's one of the three disciples with Jesus in the garden. Remember this? Jesus says, this is the moment. It is most severe and heavy on me. Would you stay awake with me as I pray? And Peter's one of the disciples who... Shortly after he hears these words from Jesus, he falls asleep. Peter's frail. Now, this is not a comprehensive picture of the man, but it's a snapshot, okay? It is a picture of my understanding as we read the gospel of the apostle Peter. These are the things we recognize about him. These are the things that we can point to to identify the characteristics and the, the content of the man up until this point. And I think no matter what you were to pull out of the Gospels and examine the Apostle Peter, you know what you would find? I believe we find that he is extraordinarily, astonishingly normal. He's normal. He's just like us. I think that's an important observation as we look at the these disciples over the next three weeks, that they are just like us because what often happens, and it happens with this passage, I've heard it a hundred times, we either elevate the disciples and we say, look how perfect they are, if only we were like them, or we tend to reduce them and to say, well, how terrible. Don't be like Peter. That's how people often preach this passage. Don't be like Peter. How dare Peter deny the Lord three times, okay? 
the reality, as we look at the man Peter, is he's exactly like us. He's exactly like us. Imagine if he was just strolling here this morning and he trimmed his beard and he was wearing a pair of khakis and a button-up shirt and he sat here in the first or second row. You'd say, oh, there's another visitor to mercy. He's not gliding on the floor or his head is not glowing. He's not moving with perfection. He's just like you and I. He has some of the same strengths and weaknesses that we have. Some of the same successes and failures. Peter's like us. And I want you to see that as we look at this passage this morning because this map of Peter could easily be your character map. It could be the story of you. It could be a snapshot of your life. And you could make your own character map and you might find there are these things about you that are both good and bad. There are strengths and weaknesses. That we are, are much like Peter. And yet, one of the most significant things about Peter that will have a huge, massive impact on the passage that we read this morning is that there's also something else about Peter that we recognize through the Gospels, but most importantly as we move forward into the Acts of the Apostles and into the Epistles. And that is that Peter has been given the gift of faith. There's faith. I'm going to put it right in the middle. Faith. You might be wondering, how do I know that Peter has faith? How do we know that Peter actually has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay? Because it's not a given that he's just a disciple and the disciples have faith. We know of other disciples who do not have faith. That would be obvious as we speak about Judas Iscariot in two weeks. Okay? How do we know that Peter has faith? Well, not only... Does Jesus say Peter has faith? We'll actually see it in the passage this morning. But we recognize the faith of Peter in a number, number of helpful observations during Peter's life. For instance, when he is met by Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, all of the gospel writers describe it as a turning, that he went from being a fisherman, he turned and he left that life, and he went to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The great biblical descriptions of faith is that it is a turning. Faith will be a, a, a turning away of uh, worldliness, turning away from the flesh and the things of this world to the things of Christ. But there are other ways we recognize that Peter had faith. Peter's one of the very few people during the life of Christ who will actually verbally out loud, and he does it on at least two occasions, affirm that Jesus is indeed the Messiah the Savior. That's a significant thing. In the Gospels, the affirmation that Jesus Christ is actually the Messiah of God, the Savior of the people of God, is something that can only be seen with eyes of faith. That The natural man doesn't see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter sees this in the Lord Jesus with eyes of faith. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. It's the substance of things hoped for. It is by faith that we are saved. And Peter demonstrates this faith through the Gospels. Now, faith is going to be an important part of the conversation this morning about this passage. But what I hope you'll see is that even 
Peter with his faith, he is exactly like you and I, for even as we have these various characteristics, we, if we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the same faith as Peter, a gift of God to us, by which we are saved, through which we, th- we see things unseen, <laughs> substance of things hoped for. This morning in this passage then, Jesus will say something very interesting about the faith of Peter. You see, this passage, as Jesus begins speaking, he mentions Peter's faith. And listen to what he says in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is a an, an interesting, vivid description that Luke gives of this conversation. This is the only gospel where it's recorded like this. Okay? Matthew, Mark, and John, you know what they say? They say, Jesus came up to Peter, and he said to Peter, before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. And that's it. Luke is the only one who records these intimate details in this conversation with Peter, and how vivid is this description that Jesus gives about what is about to happen to Peter. He says, Satan has demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. Do you know what that picture means? Very interesting. You you may have heard this before. I always, every time I think about it, I find this to be interesting for a number of reasons. The the winnowing of wheat during this time period, it happens in a very specific way. Okay, so you guys know what wheat is. Wheat is grown in a field. It grows like two or three feet high. It's a long, skinny stalk. It, It gets to be golden brown. At the top, there's these these heads of grain with the silk and the leaves that go around them, okay? And what would happen is every year at harvest, the wheat would be gathered, it would be piled up, and then the, the task would be to separate the grains of wheat from the rest of the stalk and the leaves, okay? So here's what would happen. You would wait for a windy day. You would take your winnowing fork, which was like a pitchfork, and you would go into your pile of wheat, and you would stick the pitch, pitchfork into the pile, and you would throw it up into the air, Okay? And you continue throwing it up into the air. And, and what would happen is the, the silk and the leaves that were light, they would float on the wind and they'd, they'd just drift away. And the stalks of the wheat, they would drift just a few feet and they would fall a few feet from you. But the heads of grain that were heavy, they weren't carried by the wind and they would fall on the floor at your feet. And the winnowing process was a continual process where you'd stick your pitchfork in and you'd throw it and it'd float away and they'd drop and you'd continue doing that until you had your pile of grains of wheat right here before you. That's the winnowing process. If you understand that, you get the picture that Jesus is describing here. Satan has demanded you, Peter. And he has asked to stick a pitchfork in you and to stir up your faith and to separate it and to see if it can't be pried from your heart. That's the picture that Jesus is painting to Peter here. As he speaks about this. Now, I don't know for sure, but I, I was reading this. I thought, this, this must be the reason why the character of, of Satan now is a, is a red devil with a pitchfork. I, I think that's why he's holding a pitchfork. It's the winnowing fork. The one he's demanding to sift the people of God with. And as Jesus is speaking to Peter here about the demands of Satan to have him And to sift him like wheat, he says, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. See, Jesus prayed for the faith of Peter. The actual Greek says, I have begged for you. It's not the word, it's not the Greek word for pray. It's the Greek word to plead or to beg. I have begged for you that your faith may not cease, that it may not be thwarted, it may not come to an end. It's the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ interceding on behalf of Peter. I have come before the throne of God begging that your faith, Peter, may not fail. And as we look at this passage this morning, you'll see that the second thing I've written there on the insert in the bulletin is is that I I think this is a, a real, genuine understanding of faith. I think it's a real, genuine understanding of faith. What I mean by that is I believe that we can often construct unrealistic expectations of our own faith. As if to say, we expect that our faith will be perfect, and if we experience doubt or frailty, there is something terribly wrong. But this picture that's being painted of the faith of Peter, I believe is a very real understanding of the faith that we have. Yes, it is a gift of God. Yes, it is a work of the Holy Spirit, but it is a a weak faith. Sometimes it's an immature faith. Sometimes it's a faith that is under attack. Sometimes it's a faith that is being severely hindered. Sometimes it is a faith that is experiencing great trial and tribulation. This is a real picture of our faith. Just as Jesus describes here of Peter, so Satan is often trying among the people of God to sift us like wheat with the winnowing fork that he might separate us from our faith, that it might be diminished or even destroyed. Now we know that the work that God has begun in us, he will bring to fruition, and yet we experience these trials and tribulations. See, this is, this is exactly what Jesus is saying is about to happen, and we see it manifest in verses 54 through 62. The sifting of Peter is now happening before our eyes, and Peter denies the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Okay, I'm going to draw my picture of a winnowing fork. Satan demanded to have Peter. It manifests before our eyes in 54 through 62, and it is most obvious in verse 62 when we read about now the demeanor of Peter. What happens? Three times he denies the Lord Jesus. In verse 62, it says he went out and he wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. That is a reflection in the heart of Peter of the sifting that was going on in his heart, of the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fear that he now experienced, wondering what was going on in a heart that just earlier had said to the Lord Jesus, I'm ready to die with you. I'm going to prison with you. Where you go, I go. You are the Messiah. I'm with you wherever you go. Jesus. This morning as we think about this passage with the Apostle Peter, let me just say 
this is what we experience in our lives day to day, okay? This is the testing of our faith. These are the trials that we experience. These are the ways in which we struggle. And sometimes we are Peter in Matthew 16 and we say, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And other times we are Peter in this passage and we say, no, I don't know him. No way, man. You got the wrong person. Jesus, never heard of him. Sometimes we say it is well with my soul. Sometimes we say it is unwell with my soul. We experience this type of sifting in our own hearts, the trying of our faith, the testing of our endurance. The Westminster Confession describes it like this. Um, as a side note, there's an, the insert in your bulletin, if you remember, I'm trying to give you a few questions at the end so that when you go home, if you want to think more on this passage or you want to talk with your children about the text or about the sermon, there are questions there. And so I pointed out in that second question, Westminster Confession, chapter 13. The Westminster Confession is just this great collection of what we believe about Scripture it's been summarized for hundreds of years. It takes various subjects and it speaks about them. In chapter 13, the Westminster Confession speaks about sanctification. And here's what it says. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man. Yet it is imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See the word that was used? An irreconcilable war. An irreconcilable war, but the regenerate part does eventually overcome. This passage describes the irreconcilable war very simply. Here's the faith gift of God given to Peter. Here's the winnowing fork of Satan, and boom, they're put one against the other. And it produces an irreconcilable war in the heart of Peter that is raging. We see him in his lowest moment denying the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 54 through 62. Here's the big thing for me, though. There's always a question that remains when we read a passage like this. It's a why question, okay? You can think of it any number of ways. In verse 31, Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you, Peter. And you might be like, well, okay, yeah, Satan demanded, but God gets to decide, doesn't he? Satan can demand, but God can say yes, and God can say no. He can say, beat it, Satan. You can have nothing to do with Peter. And it's reminiscent of the, the passage from Job that we read this morning, the Old Testament reading, where Satan appears before God and God is like, hey, have you seen my, my servant Job? He, 
he's good and honest and he worships me. And, and Satan says, yeah, but it's just because his life is good. Let me have him just for a little while and I'm sure he will deny you, right? And Satan demands to God and God says, okay, just don't kill him, but go. And the question that we ask when we see this or we experience this, the sifting of the wheat, the winnowing fork of Satan is why? For what purpose? If God has all authority and dominion, what in the world is he doing? And I think it's, it comes out here in the most beautiful of ways. It's my favorite part of this passage. In verse 32, as Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Then he says, And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Or strengthen your brothers. And there's so much about that verse that, that just stands out, so important to talk about. First of all, Jesus doesn't say to Peter, if you are restored or if you turn again, right? That's the, the phrase there, the, the turning again, it's a, it's a phrase of restoration. It's being made whole again. It's being renewed, right? And Jesus doesn't say to Peter, listen, Satan's coming and he's gonna sift you like wheat and if this all works out well, if that happens, then you go and, and you strengthen the brothers. He says, when? If I was Peter sitting there listening to what Jesus said, that, I hope, would have given me great assurance in my heart. Satan has this plan, and he desires to sift you. And he thinks it's going to shake your faith from your life. It's going to end it. It's going to bring it to a, a completion, a halt. But when you have been restored, when you have been renewed, strengthen the brothers. I would suggest to you this morning, as we read verse 32, the, the sentence is meant to be read with purpose, okay? It is meant to be a purpose statement. And that is, let me suggest to you, I think we ought to understand it like this. Jesus says, I have begged for you that your faith may not fail so that when you have been restored, you will strengthen your brothers. That is to say, the winnowing fork of Satan and the sifting of your faith and the testing of that faith and the trial that you face and the denying of the Lord and the weeping in bitterness and the restoration of you, Peter, is part of the design of God that when you have been restored and your faith tested and you experience great weakness and trial and you be brought back and renewed, all of this will be used for the strengthening of your brothers. I'm going to draw them over here. Okay, I'm just going to draw three, maybe, maybe four. That this would be used for the strengthening of your brothers in Christ. You know, as we think about this passage, I, I believe that Jesus in speaking to Peter is not saying this will be used 
simply to strengthen James and John or Andrew or Matthew or of the disciples. Not even that it would be used to strengthen the people gathered at Pentecost or the early church in the book of Acts. I believe Jesus is speaking about the strengthening of the brothers that would continue to happen and happens even this day. As the people of God read about Peter, I believe we see this unfolding in the rest of the New Testament. You think about everything that comes from Peter from this point forward. I think the testing of his faith, the winnowing fork of Satan, the denial of Christ, and then the restoration of Peter, I think we see the fruit of that in Acts chapter 2 with the boldness that Peter has to proclaim the whole counsel of God to the people. I think we see it in the compassion and the kindness of Peter in Acts 12 at the Jerusalem council. When everyone's wondering, are we going to include the Gentiles? Are they actually part of this? Peter boldly speaks on behalf of the Gentiles. I think we see it in the clarity that Peter will write in his letters that he will send to the saints who are dispersed. I think we see it in Peter's perseverance and contentment when he's imprisoned and he sits waiting upon the Lord to work. I think we see it in the courage that Peter has when he will be crucified many years later. All of this part of God's design for strengthening the brothers. That they would see the testing of his faith, the persevering work of the Holy Spirit, that they would be encouraged then by the words and the work of God through the Apostle Peter. So the question I have for you this morning is very simple. What are the trials and the challenges that you are facing in your own life? How are you sensing the winnowing fork, the shaking of your faith, the, the challenges, the ones that you have experienced, the ones that you are experiencing, and dare I say, the ones that you will experience? And have you asked the question, Lord, what is your design for this? That my brothers and sisters in Christ might be strengthened. That, that they might be encouraged. Or have we been too consumed with questions like, why me? Why would you ever do this to me, God? See, it's part of God's design. In the life of every believer that through testimonies of perseverance, the saints might be encouraged. Through great examples of trial and tribulation, they might be exhorted. Through an utter dependence only on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be lifted up, that they might be pointed forward, that the church might be strengthened, that each of us might be challenged, and that God might be glorified through the process. See, as we Finish this morning, the faith of Peter 
was being used by the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father. This is the very thing that Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For what purpose? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's a purpose and meaning in all of our trials. There's a purpose and meaning in all of the challenges of our faith and all of our greatest struggles. That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this passage from Luke chapter 22. We thank you for the Apostle Peter. And we thank you that as we look at his life, his words, that we see that he is not perfect, nor is he an utter failure, but that he is just like us. That he has both strengths and weaknesses. That he has triumphs in you, and that he has great moments of failure, like we see in this passage this morning. And yet in the midst of this, we know that the faith that you gave him and the faith that you have given us will be worked out by your Spirit more and more, that we would be shaped and formed to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That even as we experience the irreconcilable war in this world that rages within us, you will, in that last day, bring this work to completion. That we will stand before you both justified and sanctified without spot or blemish, by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So give us great confidence, and may we go forward to see our trials as one of the great avenues of strengthening the brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask all of this in your holy and perfect name. Amen.